We're going to begin summer here a little bit early. The calendar says we are about a month away, but uh, and then most of us measure it by Memorial Day. But we're going to kick off our summer in the Psalms this morning. Uh, the Psalms will be what we'll be looking at for the most part uh, this summer, uh, particularly as, as Camper and I, as we are, are speaking. We're also going to be having several guests uh, coming in, and some of them will be joining us in speaking from the Psalms. Uh, Jeff Lee, the campus minister for RUF at uh, Christopher Newport, will be coming in. Uh, we also have uh, a church planter, uh, John Gibson, who will be planting a, a church in Ashland, Virginia. Uh, Jimmy Brock is uh, planting a church in, in Virginia Beach are coming in. And we're still waiting to hear as to whether Matt Garrison can get sprung from his Anglican church and come home where he belongs. So, uh, so we'll find out uh, that this summer. And we have absolutely no idea what Matt will do. But then those of you who know Matt, you would know that anyway. Um, uh, this morning we're going to look at Psalm 19. You see, during the summer, as we look, there is absolutely no sequential order in which we will be looking at our psalms. I don't know if Camper had a rationale for his uh, order, but I did not. So, um, Psalm 19, not 119, for those of you who are sweating. Um, Hear the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word of our God, let's pray. Holy God, we do come and we, we praise you through song and through prayer as uh, you are worthy to receive. And now we give our ears to you that we may hear what you would speak to us through these words that you have recorded from your servant David. I pray, Lord, that you would not only give us ears to hear, but minds to understand, and above all, hearts to receive. That this word that you have given us will have the effect that you have promised, that it will shape us, it will guide us, it will sustain us and revive us. That we may give thanks to you and recognize that you are one who not only created but you are still at work, 
and you will continue your work until the work that you began has come to completion and each of us who belongs to you has come to full maturity in Christ Jesus. Lord, be at work now as we study your word. We pray to your glory and for our joy in Christ. Amen. C.S. Lewis says of, of Psalm 19, this psalm must be the greatest poem in the Psalter. For those of you who are not from Presbyterian background, Psalter is the, the collection of psalms. We kind of take that for granted. But he says, this psalm must be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And there's no question that this psalm is a tremendous poem. It is lyrical in its essence. It is profound in its substance. But as I, I read it, I see that there is something more than just a great poem and a, a psalm that uh, we can turn to, to recite and to, to bring us comfort. I, I see that in this particular psalm, a, a recipe for renewal. It is principles that are embedded here that David is reminding himself that God has chosen to record principles of personal renewal personal growth in, in grace and spiritual revival. Now, if you know anything about uh, David, who was king of Israel, um, if you know much about him anyway, you, you know that he is a man who was often in need of personal renewal and to be reconciled to God. His greatness is well chronicled and, and certainly is, is well deserved. He's one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament. He was a giant slayer. He was a king. And above all, perhaps, is that he was declared to be a man after God's own heart. In other words, he had passion, and he had passion for God. And he wanted to please God. He wanted his life to glorify God. He wanted to be in God's presence more than anything else. But then we also see tremendous evidence throughout the scriptures of how deeply flawed of a man he was. And despite the fact that he wanted to please God and he wanted to honor God and he wanted to glorify God, he would have these moments, many of them, where he had to wonder, what in the world was I thinking? And his failures are well chronicled. The decisions he made not only brought troubles for himself, but in his own family and essentially in his workplace for those he was called to lead, the, the kingdom over which he was called to reign. And as I think about that, it's probably one of the reasons that this psalm resonates with me so much. I certainly identify with the author of it as one who wants very definitely to honor God, but then wonders so often, what was I, I thinking or why wasn't I thinking? Why did I do that or why didn't I do that? And realize that so many of my momentary decisions actually are counterproductive to what I want to be true for my life. And even though God is always faithful and always present, and we know, as we declare today, God is compassionate, he's slow to anger, and he has made a way of reconciliation, I can feel very distant from God because of my own failures. And then anguish because I can see the pain that I cause to the people who are around me, in my family or you, because of decisions that I make. And nothing breaks my heart more than to see pain that I'm causing those that I love. And as David writes this particular psalm, he is demonstrating to us a, a, an authenticity. And he is sharing with us a message that I, 
I need desperately. And I suspect so do some of you. Now, as you look at Psalm 19, it really breaks up very easily in certain ways. If you were just going to do a Bible study outline, it breaks up into three parts. Verses 1 through 6, he's talking about the creation or what we would call special or general revelation. And then verses 7 through 11, he's speaking of the scriptures, which we would call special revelation. And then verses 12 through 14, we see how David responds to those things. But what we need to see beyond the outline as the, the text flows is that this morning we're going to answer two questions that uh, I think that are embedded in this text that make it more personal for us. One is, how has God revealed himself to us? And then second, how is it that we are to respond? And overarching, what we see is that it is by seeing God as he has revealed himself that brings change in David's life. It is the beholding the glory and the nature of God as he has revealed himself that is a power in his life. And, and we understand that because many of us have seen things in our lives that, that have changed us forever. Maybe you grew up uh, far from the coast and you can remember the first time that you saw the sea. Uh, maybe you remember the first time you were before the, the Grand Canyon. Or for those of you that are parents, remember the first sight you had of the firstborn in your family and, and stunned. And your life is changed forever. Well, there are things in this world and things in this life that can change us. And among them, and perhaps and certainly greatest of them, is when we are able to see the glory of God as he has revealed it for us because we are changed when we see his glory. So the question is, how does God reveal himself? And David tells us what we need to understand is that God reveals himself in two ways. And he begins first by declaring to us and, and he shows us that we see the wonder of God in the world or we see the wonder of God through creation. He begins the Psalms with, with these uh, poetic words. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And I don't know if you see what David is doing, but in addition to being tremendously poetic, he is, one, taking us back to the very beginning, to the very beginning of God's revelation in Genesis chapter 1, because we see there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and David is saying, the heavens declare the glory of God. David's taking us not only back to the very beginning, he's taking us back to the basics. What do I know? Well, I, I, I can see the splendor that's around me and that tells me something about God. And he's inviting us to look up into the sky, this time particularly at night, and to be awed and to be wondered, be in wonder and then also somehow to be informed about what God is like. When we look at these opening words in these, this first passage, one of the things that we, we see here by implication is that it is our duty to learn what we can about God from his created order. That's why David is writing this. He's saying God is revealing himself. He's, Paul picks up on this in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, when he says what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we are all without excuse. 
David's inviting us at the beginning of this passage to look up into the night sky and to see the stars and to see uh, the moon and, and to see as far as you're able with a naked eye or with a telescope. And there's a tremendous change in perspective that happens when we do that. I'm far from an astronomy expert. I did pass my college class, but I passed my college class. Um, so I had to look this up, which is curious. And so I went onto the NASA website, and here's an article that uh, they had says this. Our sun, the nearest star, is 93 million miles away. According to the article, that's why the sun, which is a million times the size of the Earth, looks so small. It would take the space shuttle seven months to fly there. And our star and its planets are just one small part of the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way is so big that even at the speed of light, it would take 100,000 years to travel across it. And the Milky Way is just one galaxy. It's the galaxy we are in. There are as I understand, thousands of galaxies in, of the, the known universe. And we don't know what's beyond the known universe, which is why it's the unknown universe. And, and we, we, what we know is beyond our comprehension. And there is so much that we can't possibly know. And we'll never live long enough to, to be able to explore. And David is inviting us here contemplate that, and he's instructing us here to deduce certain truths from the revealed world that tell us something of the characteristics of our God. And then he moves on and he he kind of poetically talks about the, the sun, and he talks about the fact that the sun is so powerful that we can't escape its heat. And he uses the language of it. He's like a bridegroom who comes out, or like a strong runner who runs its course. And, and what we get from the imagery that David is using here is the power of the sun itself that affects so much, and yet it is totally obedient to the God who created everything. So what are some of the things that we're supposed to get from this? Well, Paul tips us off when he picked up on this theme and he said, well, we're to recognize God, God's power and, and, and his deity. But when we, we look at some of these things that David is, is talking about, even through his, his poetry, we see not only power as one who is more powerful than the sun, that he created it and you know, he put it in a tent and then he lets it out each morning and uh, David's poetic license. We're told that we see the wisdom of God because there's an orderliness to everything that happens. We see that as David is describing the sun each day. Runs its course. We see that there is a steadfast, there's a faithfulness, there's a consistency and a constancy uh, in, in these things. There is a reliability because you know very few of us wonder whether the sun is coming up tomorrow. We just know. And it's because God who has created it has created it in a way that we can rely on it because the God that we serve, the one who's created it, is reliable. We can't possibly exhaust the, uh, the, the attributes that we see, but what we do see in this is that David is inviting us to recognize that God reveals himself and he tells us some profound things about himself through the creation that he has made. 
And it is our responsibility to learn about God through the things that he's made. Now, that's not just because it's a, a duty, but because there's a benefit that comes to us as well. A few years ago, I, I read, uh, it was a, a, a tweet that uh, Paul Tripp filed on his Twitter, and it just simply said this, bird watching is good for your soul. And then there was a link to an article that he had written, and, and I'm just going to give an excerpt from what he had written there, because it it's really is pertinent to this, is why we actually, not only as we have a duty, but we benefit when we are engaging God's revelation in his creation. And here's what Tripp says. When you're struggling with anxiety, Jesus tells you to look around the creation. He's talking about, you know, consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Embedded in the physical world are constant theological reminders that God doesn't abandon the work of his hands. The birds of the air, the flowers of the field, and countless other living organisms point to the loving care of God. If God would care that much for birds and flowers, how much more would he care for those made in his image? If God feeds and clothes animals and plants without an eternal soul, how much more will he provide for those covered by the costly blood of his own son? You have reason to rest because creation preaches to you a gospel of divine faithfulness. And the idea that the God the creation is is preaching is, is not something that Tripp is just kind of using metaphorically because David says that too. When he's talking about that they, they speak, it is as if God himself, through creation, creation is testifying, and God is speaking out to us through his creation. We benefit. We are eased. We have our perspective changed. And we are able to engage and enjoy the creation God has given us. And one of the things that Tripp points out is the whole consider the lilies of the field and the birds. That's written as a commandment. You're, you're commanded at times to go out and to enjoy the creation. And just watch as the birds come and go and go about their business and how they're provided for. It's a fascinating, fascinating thing when you find your blood pressure dropping significantly. But I think along with that, we also need to recognize there's another aspect to uh, responsibility that we, who are followers of Jesus Christ, have when it comes to God's created order. Because the fact is that Christians, evangelical perhaps, uh, as much as anybody are, sometimes accused and often rightly accused of diminishing the value of creation. In other words, that we, we get criticized for not caring for God's creation as we ought. And the reality is we, above all people, should be caring for God's created order because we believe that it was made by our Father. It's the work, the handiwork of our Father. And because we recognize that it testifies about the character of our Father. You know, in the news recently, tragedy that took place in Paris with the, the burning of the cathedral at Notre Dame. One of the things that was a constant refrain was, what's going to happen to all the artwork? Unfortunately, they were able to get much of it out, and some of it was slightly damaged, and they'll be able to restore it. But some uh, tremendous treasures of art have been lost. And people are understandably and rightly concerned about the preservation of that which is beautiful. But if we're concerned about something that Michelangelo done, has done, shouldn't we be all the more concerned about preserving what 
God has done. Not only because God has done it, but he's given it to us as a gift that we might find peace and joy and we may know him. We need to appreciate what God has done, not just because God did it, because he gave it to you and he gave it to me. And then David shifts gears here. After waxing on poetically about the creation and the benefits of the creation, it almost seems as if he's starting in a whole new psalm. In fact, a lot of times you'll see people teaching this in two different sections. It certainly is worthy of two different messages, but I also think it's because it just it, there seems to be an incongruity here. As you know, he talks about creation. Now all of a sudden he just shifts into this passage in verse 7. Now all of a sudden the law of the Lord is perfect. And yet there is a continuity here, and it is the fact that God is revealing himself in two ways, through the general revelation of creation and the special revelation of his scripture. And both are very important. There's no question that God speaks through his creation. And I explain it this way to people at times, particularly those who find very little use and very little need for being students of, of the Bible. Is that while God speaks through creation, he speaks in the same way that um, abstract art might speak. It, it definitely declares a message. And some of you who are art students and art astute may be able to grasp more than I can. I know that it gives a message. I'm just not always sure exactly what message the artist was trying to give me. And there is some truth of that in creation. While there are tremendous truths that we can glean from creation about what God is like, God is speaking to us in broad generalities and so we can get themes. But through the scripture, he speaks very specifically. If we use the art theme, it's more like impressionism or even oil painting because he gets very, very clear. And the big themes that we are able to glean out of creation, God not only touches upon, but he elaborates and brings in crystal clarity through the revelation that he has given to us through those who wrote the books of our Bible. And there's no question that that's what he's speaking of. And, and David uses, again, poetically, but he uses a variety of different words here to, to speak of what we consider or call scripture. I mean, look through beginning in verse 7 of what he, the words, law of the Lord, testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, commandments of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. I mean, so he's using a number of different metaphors, different aspects of the writings that God has preserved for us so that we may know him, so that he can reveal himself to us. And then consider afterwards, not just the, the words that he's using to describe, but how he describes those attributes. Perfect, sure, right, leading us to joy, enlightening, enduring, righteous. And so they're not just, this is not just a, a collection of stories and information, but it is something that is true and it is beautiful and there is an effect that comes from what God has given to us. And then David goes on and he describes the value of scripture. It is more valuable than gold more valuable than even much pure or much fine gold. And then he goes on and adds even further. And he said, and it's sweeter than honey, even drippings from the honeycomb, which I'll confess to you for a long time, just seemed kind of like weird to me. 
Okay, you know, I, and, and and I realize what I think he's talking about is, you know, a lot of the things that we must do, you know, whether we were studying for our classes in college or things that we need to learn for, they just there's the, there's the bitter taste of of the chore. And he's saying that when we feed on God's word, what God has given to us is not something that's bitter, but that when we feed upon it, we find that it is. It is a delight and not just a, a task. The question that we need to be asking ourselves is this. Do we really see God's word this way? Is it really more valuable to you than gold, to wealth than wealth? Is it sweeter to you than honey? The reality is we value it, but you know, more than your paycheck. And I have to confess that I'm at a disadvantage in this because studying the word is connected to my paycheck. And so I really don't know how to answer the question in some ways, honestly, because I've not in my adult life had to, to do that. But even with that, it's quite a claim that David is making about its value and then about its, its sweetness. And I suspect the issue for those of us who may not see it the same way that David does, thinking that maybe in his poetic license he's delving a little bit into hyperbole. But I wonder if the issue may be in the way that we read it and the way we relate to it. The reality is we should be reading the scriptures as if we are feeding on them, as if they bring life, that we live in them. It's not like a, a textbook that you have to get through and then you keep so that you have a reference at times when you have questions. What David did and what he's assuming those who will value the word and recognize that this is the word of God that reveals life to us will do is that they'll relate to this book the same way many of us relate to our iPhones. Can't even imagine being apart from it. If you leave and you left it at home, you just feel like something is wrong. Spending so much time to it, any little break in time, any sense of boredom in your life, Boom, out comes the phone. Because there you find the answers to life, right? Just boom, press it and Google. And David is saying that if you relate to the Bible this way, to God's revelation of himself through his word, you will find that it is sweet as honey and you will experience the value. And you don't experience the value when it is an optional thing that is sitting on your shelf that you pull out and bring to church once a week. And as I heard one person say at one time, if it doesn't taste like honey, it's because we're not feeding on it. Nothing tastes like honey if it's not in your mouth. It'd be like taking the jar out of your pantry and saying, this is sweet. But it's not the same as experiencing it as taking it out of the jar and actually tasting it. And David talks about these two things, and he tells us that it is sweet. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that while the creation testifies to 
the nature and the characteristic of God. It is only in the scripture that God gets very specific and he gives us the words of his grace. Because while God reveals himself in the wonder of the world, he also reveals himself through his wonderful grace and his word. And David's standing amazed. And he's reminding himself of these truths. And he's saying that there are benefits to being in the word and to relating to the word. And we see some of those benefits. He says, first of all, it revives the soul, which is what gives me the first clue that this is about renewal. He's somehow concerned that he needs to be spiritually, have a fire lit back in his heart. And he's saying that as I see God revealed, and as I understand the grace of God that he has revealed, it brings life, revive, makes alive again. It brings renewal. It reforms. It shapes. Because we see some other characteristics. He says, first of all, it makes wise the simple. Life can be so complex. I don't always have the answers. And when I make quick decisions rather than uh, on complex issues, there's a good chance that it's going to be inadequate or wrong or, or detrimental. With God's word, we're told that it speaks to people like me because it enables people who are simple to be able to have wisdom. Which is not my wisdom, it's God's wisdom. He becomes the coach. It enlightens the eyes. In other words, we're able to see more clearly what's going on around us when we have God's input. If you're going and looking at something and you're making a tour, sometimes it is helpful to have somebody pointing things out. When we bought our house when we moved to Tennessee, we were walking around the house. Overall, it was in pretty good shape. Then we took a man who, he built his own house, uh, you know, with his own bare hands on his time, on his own time. He went in and he said, well, boom, 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 and, you know, found a half dozen things. He said, we're not signing anything until you fix it. I'd have never seen those things. And the same thing is true. God enlightens the eyes. Having God's word and feeding on God's words enables us to see the world that we live in and the circumstance you're in with eyes that you don't necessarily have at least not on your own capacity. It brings warning and it guides us and ultimately we see that it makes the heart rejoice because if you have all those other characteristics, then life becomes much more pleasant, especially because the scriptures testify to the fact that God is with you and will never forsake you. And the guarantee of that is the fact that he sent his own son. David looks at these things and he begins to say, I am being changed. Or he's changed by the, the reality of these things. He has a new perspective, and we see that in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? And then he moves on, seems, seems like uh, non sequitur, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Well, in one sense, it seems like a non sequitur, unless you stop and say, Well, what is he saying? Who can discern his errors? Look, I don't even know where I'm wrong unless God enlightens me and gives me wisdom and shows that. Now all of a sudden I see that I've got a problem because God's enlightened me, but I, I want to be declared innocent from things that you may not see but are still very, very real. How does that happen? Because God has exposed the reality of my own heart, my hidden flaws, my hidden faults, I'm able to confess and to repent which also demands that I believe in God's provision for me in Jesus Christ. Only as I repent and believe 
am I declared innocent from hidden faults or the ones that you all see quite clearly. So he has a totally new perspective here. He is, by faith, pardoned from his iniquities. That's why Martin Luther pointed out that all of life is to be lived out in repentance. It's not something we do if we have to. We have to, and so therefore we get to repent. And Puritan Thomas Watson, who's one of my favorite quotes, said, faith and repentance are the two wings by which we fly toward heaven. In other words, it's a constant reminder of faith and repentance, repentance and faith. Both are necessary day by day, moment by moment. Otherwise, you're like an airplane trying to fly with one wing. Now, I'm not an air pilot, but I'm guessing that's not a possibility. And so with this new perspective, we also see the change is happening because now all of a sudden we see David praying in verse 13 and 14. He's praying for discernment. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. In other words, God, may it work in me and preserve me. Spare me from my own stupidity. And don't let my foolishness and even even ungodly desires, don't let them own me. See, he's acknowledging his need of God to be at work and praying for not only discernment to see, but for protection even from himself and his own desires. And then in verse 14, we see that he's praying for enablement in his deed, in his words, and in his thoughts. But the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, it's not just let me behave in a way that is respectable, but anything I say, anything I think, Lord, may it be pleasing to you. He's praying that God would enable him to live a life in that way. So here's a man who, we don't know how broken he is at at this point in his life, but he's aware of his need of continual and repeated renewal. He knows that change comes when he sees God and that God has revealed himself both through creation and through his word and that our understanding of God requires that we are sensitive and engaging in both. And then as our perspective is changing, we are able to approach the God who we now trust, who is all-powerful and is also all-caring, and asking him to be at work, to grant us discernment, to protect us, to rest in him, and to enable us to live the way that we want to live. And I find tremendous comfort, encouragement, and instruction from this passage. And I invite you and remind myself to savor both the word and God's world, the creation and scripture. Because we know that the glory of God revealed is the power to revive, to renew, and to reform. And it is as God is at work that we find the joy that we long for. I pray that that conviction would refresh and renew us day by day so people of God seek God's glory so that his power and wisdom might be reflected in your words and your ways. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for the transparency of one as David, 
to recognize that there is nothing new, that we are all broken. We all have need. It's just a matter of degree. But that you are great, and you are good, and you are faithful, and you are loving. Father, restore us in that truth, renew us, and give us the perspective that you have granted through your revelation of yourself, that we all may grow in conformity to your likeness, for your glory, and for the joy that is ours. We pray in Christ. Amen.